this last year, it's become apparent to me that among even the conservative evangelical churches in this community, we do not have share a commitment to the Trinity. So there are a number of evangelical churches in this community that have no problem with worshiping together with those who deny the personhood of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and hold to the historic Trinity. Now, obviously, when this kind of thing happens, you have to go back a while and reappraise. You have to look at everything you do and you have to say, okay, it's a new day we live in. How are we going to live in this day? Not how do our parents live in the 1950s, but how are we going to live today? And part of that has, has issued in us wanting to do something akin to what the Apostle Paul did in Athens. And I want you to turn there with me so you get an idea that missions is uh, sort of a multifaceted, big, sort of big picture thing. If you look with me at Acts chapter 17, you'll see the kind of thing that missions should mean to us, all right? Because Athens is very similar to Bloomington. The main thing at its center was high culture, and that's true with Bloomington. It doesn't mean that there weren't people back then that were just you know, taking care of the horses and feeding them, and that's all they did. And there are people here. But this, this community is very much similar to Athens. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city of idols. Full of, excuse me, the city full of idols. Now, mind you, um, the Apostle Paul is a missionary. All right? By any, no matter how you define the term, he's a missionary. And so he's in a city and he's provoked. And that's what I hope we as a congregation are constantly here. That we're provoked as we look around seeing that the city is full of idols. So he was doing what? What was he doing? Huh? I'm verse, oh, I never told you my verse. I'm sorry. I'm in verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now, you could keep reading and you'd see Paul engaging. But this is the context that he lived in. And uh, so, why the titles? You know, why have Dr. Haifman? You know, why not have somebody that served in Africa for the last 30 years and can tell us how the Lord's working in Africa? Well, you know how the Lord is working in Africa. All of you familiar with the slaughter in Rwanda recently? Somewhere between 750 and 1.2 million people killed. And are you aware of how many of those people who were killed and were doing the killing were Christians who had been won to the Lord by evangelical missionaries? So, again, my point is, we need to go back to first things. We need to say, okay, what are our commitments? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to preach the gospel? And that's the reason for inviting Dr. Haithman here. The reason is for him to come to us and to proclaim the teaching of Scripture concerning the essence, the core, the nature of our faith. And what better place to start than for him to come into the middle of Bloomington and do what Paul did in Athens, which is to say, you know, basically, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord makes the heaven and made the heavens and the earth. So this is going to be the subject that you're going to see woven through the weekend. Um, reasoning, carefully reasoning from Scripture, concerning our faith. Now, who is Dr. Haithman? Um, Dr. Haithman is somebody who um, people that I trust, trust. And that's sort of his commendation. You know how... if you, 
if you were going to go into a new town, you'd want to know from somebody that you trusted what church to go to. Well, Dr. Haithman, I've never met until tonight, but the people that I trust, trust him. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that he has um, taken a degree at uh, a number of different places, but finally a doctorate in theology, if I remember correctly, from uh, Tübingen in West Germany. Then he has taught at Taylor, which all of us know, at Gordon-Conwell, which I know because that's where I went to seminary, and now he's at Wheaton, and uh, in fact, I think you've had Steve Berenzi's brother. The name Berenzi rings a bell with you. He's had Steve Berenzi's brother. Uh, I forget his first name. Anyhow, he's been in his classes a number of times. Um, he's written a number of things, and if you want to know the titles, uh, I have them here in front of me. I won't list them to you. But he's also married to Deborah. He has two children, two sons. They're 19 and 22 at the time this was written. It's Okay, 23 and 20. Okay. Uh, he's a member of Wheaton Bible Church, which is the biggest competitor to my home church, College Church in Wheaton. They split back in the first part of the 20th century over infant baptism, largely. Uh, he is a Baptist, so many of you will like him for that reason. And uh, I welcome him, as all of us do, to bring to us the Word of God at this the beginning of our missions conference. Dr. Haithman. There will be a time of questions after Good evening. I've got this glass of water here. Oh, wait, I've got this thing on, and I forget which buttons to push. I'm sorry. Oh, now it's on. Thank you. Does that mean I was singing a solo during the, during the hands? Oh, good. Whoa. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, as we think together tonight about this foundational issue of how we are to approach your word and read it and explain it to others on this late evening after a hard day's work for most of us, please grant us, I pray, clarity of mind and of presentation. Help us to think carefully together tonight about this, and may our work together on this issue lay an even stronger foundation in our lives concerning the authority and centrality and significance and sufficiency of your word. I ask it then in Jesus' name, the living word that we might become more like him, worshiping him in the process. Amen. Well, if you've looked at the uh, list of titles and the outline for the missions conference this weekend, you're probably wondering, as was already mentioned, what these titles really have to do with missions. And let me tell you, and I'll say this, kind of repeat it every time for, for those of us through the weekend, but... I conceive of these three long titles and the subjects they represent as being my responses to what I consider to be the three most fundamental challenges to missions in the modern world, in our world, in our day, as Tim said. You know, and you talk about artifacts, and you know, in days gone by, they might say, well, the most fundamental challenge to missions 
is getting there. I mean, it's so far away, you're going to get on this ocean liner and be in the hold of this ship for two and a half months and give birth to your third child on way and, you know, carry your coffin on your back and not knowing what kind of diseases are going to be carried by what kind of mosquitoes when you get there and going in this vast unknown. And in large part, the challenge to missions in the past was often circumstantial. It's not circumstantial today. You can go anywhere, you know, in 8 to 12 hours. You can be in constant contact now with solar-powered satellite beaming emails, which is a great, wonderful provision by the Lord for missions. So I have missionary friends around the world, and I can be in touch with them anytime, day or night. It's amazing. They don't need electricity. They have these little suitcases. Have you seen those? You know, they can open them up, and they look at this sort of shine at the sun and even some of these guys are so good they can't even figure out where the satellites are and say, oh, wait a minute, my satellite's getting out of the way. I've got to say goodbye, you know. Um, so the challenges we're facing these days aren't so much circumstantial. They're more intellectual, personal, spiritual, philosophical, theological, and tonight we're going to see hermeneutical. And don't worry, I'll explain what that word means in a minute. But... The first challenge, then, we're going to look at to missions, what we're going to talk about tonight, is the challenge that's revolving around how we understand the Bible. Because there is a new move underfoot concerning how to understand the Bible that comes out of what we'll call postmodernism, which we'll explain in a couple minutes, but because there's this movement underfoot, a new allegorical way of reading the Bible fueled by postmodernism, people have lost confidence in understanding the Bible in such a way that they would give their lives to propagating its message around the world. And so, probably the most fundamental challenge to missions today revolves around this question of how do we understand the Bible and how do we get confidence in our understanding of the Bible. Because if you don't have confidence in understanding the Bible and don't have a clear understanding of how to understand the Bible, and someone says, now take this Bible and this message to Bongo Bongo, or Kosovo, or Afghanistan, or maybe now even Iraq in larger ways than we've ever been able before, you're going to say, well, I'm not sure I can even figure out what it says and how to explain that to somebody else. And I don't know. I think I'll just stay home and read it to myself in my living room. So the first great fundamental challenge to missions, I think, revolves around the answer to the question, how do we understand the Bible? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. The second challenge, which I'll talk about tomorrow night, is how do we understand other religions? And then Sunday morning I want to address the question, how do we understand the centrality and exclusivity of Christ? So those are really the three challenges I see posed. I mean, there's other ones, but I only got one weekend. So those are the big three I want to talk about this weekend. How do we understand the Bible? How do we understand other religions? And how do we understand Christ? And if we get confidence in our understanding of the Bible and confidence in our understanding of other religions and confidence in our understanding of Christ, I think we'll have greater confidence for missions. And if we have greater confidence for missions, we'll go. So that's the strategy for this weekend. And then tomorrow at lunch, I'll meet with college students and anybody else that wants to feel like they're a college student for a couple hours to talk about how these challenges are being impacted by a new kind of personal experientialism and mysticism and things like this 
in evangelicalism. But that's for tomorrow. Tonight, postmodernism. The influence of postmodernism on reading the Bible from the ivory tower, like at the University of Indiana, to the metal folding chairs. You guys still have pews, but most churches have metal folding chairs more and more. And back again. How in the world do we go from the postmodernism of the university to the pews of our churches and from the pews of our churches back to the university? And how are these two things, the university and the church, influencing one another in these days that people are losing confidence in their understanding of the Bible and in their ability to explain in powerful and persuasive ways that understanding to others? How is that happening? And it's all coming from what I call in this talk, postmodernism. Now, I'm using the word postmodernism. I actually don't like it. In fact, I try to never use it because it's such a fad word these days. And in one sense, postmodernism is nothing new except for its new democratic influence. By democratic influence, I mean majority rules. Postmodernism has been around ever since Paul was in Athens, Acts 17. He encountered postmodernism in Athens. They didn't call it that, but he encountered it, clear as a bell. It's just that in the world in which we live now, we can call it an ism, we can call it postmodernism, like communism or something like that, or fascism, capitalism, because there are so many people who have bought into this worldview, this way of looking at, at life, that it becomes a democratic power by virtue of the majority ruling, so many people in our culture understand themselves as holding to the central concept and conviction and consequence of this worldview that we can call postmodernism. But please, don't think by calling it postmodernism that it just showed up in 1965 when hippies were driving around in Volkswagen vans with curtains in their windows. I mean, they were postmoderns, but that's not when it showed up. It's always been with us. Paul dealt with it. Isaiah dealt with it, you know, Spurgeon dealt with it, Calvin dealt with it. It's just, it has now become a massive, dominant movement, so massive and dominant that it can become a school, if you will. Well, what is the central concept, conviction, and consequence of postmodernism that is so prevalent today that we can call it an ism? Very simple. And, of course, this is an oversimplification, but we only have an hour. Its central concept is that all truth is personal. All truth is my truth. I discovered it belongs to me and it has no more validity than in my little circle of influence, however I define the word my. Now, my could be just me in my living room. My could be me and my gender, like male truth or female truth. Or it could be me and my race, like white truth versus black truth versus Hispanic truth versus Indian truth or something. Or it could be me and my social group, like white-collar workers or blue-collar workers or university professors or university students. It could be anyone that I identify with as holding my views. But these views are personal. They're ours. They belong to us. We discover them. We own them. And they pertain only to us. They're personal, like my personal Checky checkbook, you know, it's my checkbook in my pocket, got my name on it, belongs to me. Not your checkbook, it's my checkbook. Not your truth, my truth. White truth isn't black truth. Male truth isn't female truth. White collar worker truth isn't blue collar worker truth. Afghan truth isn't American truth. 
I, mean, I, I know you know this because you hear it everywhere, right? Maybe true for me. Might not be true for you. But you've got your truth too. So if the first fundamental concept is all truth is personal, the conviction that comes from this concept is all truths are equal. My truth is mine and yours is yours, but I'm never going to say my truth is better than your truth and you better never say your truth is better than my truth. If all truth is personal, everyone's got a personhood. Everybody has an identity. Everybody has a social group. Everybody has an economic status. Everybody has a national identity. And they're all created equal. All truths are personal. Therefore, all truths are equal. And hence, if all truths are personal and equal, conclusion, consequence, all truths are relative. There's no such thing as universal truth. No such thing as a truth that I could hold that would be true for everybody at all times, in all cultures, in all places. Nothing that we could believe here in Bloomington that could be true in Baghdad or Moscow or Sydney, or Chicago, not to mention Wheaton. So that's what's going on, of course, with postmodernism. How then does this concept and this conviction and this consequence, how do these things impact reading the Bible? They have led in reading the Bible to what I call a new allegorical method. Now, to understand why I would call this a new allegorical method in reading the Bible, we've got to figure out what this allegorical method is, where it came from, and why, and why it was rejected for a while, and why it came back into play, and why postmodernism is an allegorical method, and who cares anyway? There have been, in fact, three great periods of reading the Bible allegorically in the history of the church. And the first great period of reading the Bible allegorically actually came up as a result of the passage that our brother read tonight, Isaiah 52. Especially Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings these good tidings of good things, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That, of course, was the central Bible text in the preaching of the early church when they talked about Jesus. Because remember, of course, their Bible was what we would call the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament, right? They had the Bible, we call the Old Testament, and they had Jesus, the Messiah, and they preached about Jesus in light of the Bible. And, of course, they preached the message to others that Jesus had preached to them. The time is fulfilled. Right? Repent and believe in what? Do you remember Mark 1, 14 and 15? The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in what? Do you remember what Jesus said we ought to believe in? Of course, it ends up in the end being Him. But what is... Since he already asked you a question, when Tim, I figured, well, I can, he asked questions, I can too. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in the what? The gospel. The gospel. Alright? Now, what did he mean when he said the time is fulfilled? He meant that the kingdom of God had arrived. The time of waiting for the arrival of the kingdom of God was here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So, consequently, you should repent and believe in the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news 
of the message that the kingdom of God is here. And where does this word gospel come from? Well, it was a translation in English of a translation of a Greek word, which was a translation of a Hebrew word, which came from Isaiah 52, verse 7. When Jesus said, repent and believe in the good news, every Jew knew he was talking about Isaiah 52, 7. Because Isaiah 52, 7 was the prophetic announcement that one day God would come to rule and reign over His people again and redeem them and make them His own and establish His kingdom, His rule and reign, in their midst. The word gospel in Mark 1, 14 and 15 is the noun gospel that comes from the verb announce good things, declare a good message, the missionary message. Go out there and tell everybody good news. Now, according to Isaiah 52, 7, what is the good news that you scream from the mountaintops that make your feet, be- make your, make your feet beautiful when you say it? You say to Zion, your God reigns. So, of course, if you ask Jesus, what is the good news? He would say, your God reigns. Isaiah 52, 7. That's the content of the good news. That God is now establishing His rule and reign in the midst of His people, through His Messiah, i.e. me, in such a way that we can say the kingdom of God has dawned. So you better repent and believe in this good news. Trust your life to the dawning reign of God in your midst, brought about through myself, the Messiah. Where the king is, there is the kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, eventually we see Him to be also the Lord of the nations. So, when I first became a Christian, I thought the gospel that Jesus preached was love. I mean, talk a lot about love, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the rule and reign of God in the midst of His people. Now, the problem with the gospel is how can God rule and reign in the midst of the people who deserve only His judgment and wrath? So you've got to have, of course, the death of the Messiah to enable the reign of the Messiah to take place in the midst of His people without destroying them, but instead transforming them into His own character. So the cross is the presupposition for the rule and reign of Jesus as Messiah in the midst of His people. Hence, Isaiah 52 introduces what great chapter in the Bible? Isaiah 53. So Jesus took Isaiah 52 as His main message. Right, He went around Galilee preaching the kingdom of God from Isaiah 52. And when it came time to talk about His own personal relationship to that as the Messiah, he said, well, of course, if I am the ruling and reigning Messiah of God, King of Israel, Lord of the nations, I also have to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The King who manifests the rule and reign of God in Isaiah 52 is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So Mark 1, 14 and 15 leads Jesus to Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served and to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, when he said ransom for many, everybody knew that he was talking about Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 43, where you get the ransom idea. Isaiah 53, where you get the idea of the servant giving his life for the many. All right? So the son, i.e. the king of Israel, is also the servant. The one who brings the rule of God in Isaiah 52 does so by virtue of becoming the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And that's the message the early church preached. There was only one problem. As this message went out, 
in the Jewish context in which it first had to take root in every town, in every place. They constantly encountered people, Jews, who did not understand Isaiah 53 that way at all. And they said, we could never accept your gospel. That the king is a crucified king. That the son is a servant. That the son of David is a suffering servant. Why? Because Isaiah 53 isn't about the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is about Israel. Israel's the suffering servant. Haven't you read Isaiah 42? My servant, O Israel. And so, Isaiah 53 isn't about Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus, in fact, declares that He is not the Messiah, but that He stands cursed by God as a messianic pretender. So you Christians are flat out wrong. Why? Because you understand the Bible wrongly. Your interpretation is bad. You've got bad exegesis, technical term, right, for interpreting the Bible. You've got bad exegesis. You can't read the Bible and get to your conclusions. And so everywhere the Christians went, they were confronted with opposition from folks who interpreted the Bible significantly different than they did. And therefore rejected their interpretation of Jesus to be the Messiah. Because their idea of a crucified Messiah could not be squared with their interpretation of the Bible. You can sense a problem, right? You say, well, Isaiah 53. I said, let's read Isaiah 53. It's not about a crucified Messiah. It's about suffering Israel. Israel, as a people through her suffering, is the vehicle through which God will establish His presence in the world. So there's a big debate. But that wasn't the only problem. The other problem was how to apply this Bible to the lives of Gentile, former pagans, only been a Christian for two weeks, came out of this city full of idols in Athens and in Corinth and other places like that. Corinth, where there are about 34 known world religions competing for the hearts and minds of everybody. We got it easy compared to Paul's ministry in Corinth. We only have to deal with about three or four or five. How in the world do you take the dimensions of the temple? The fact that the curtain of the temple has to be blue and purple and scarlet yarn and apply that to newly converted pagans in the city of Corinth. What about the Levitical purity prohibition against eating flying insects that work on all that walk on all fours. Leviticus eleven twenty. What's a Leviticus eleven twenty? Don't eat insects that crawl on all fours. What's that got to do with my life in Corinth? Your life in Bloomington? Why did God in his providence preserve for us the three colored yarn for the curtain of the temple? Well, you know, I'm reading the Old Testament and it talks about these cities of refuge so that any man who goes into a forest with his neighbor and to cut wood and then his, his hand when he's swinging the axe to cut down the tree accidentally while he's doing it slips and the head from the axe handle strikes his neighbor so his neighbor bleeds to death and dies in the woods from this accident with my axe handle head. Well, what should I do? Well, I know what I should do. I flee to a city of refuge to save my life. Deuteronomy 19.5. What's that got to do with us in Bloomington? What do you have to do with them in Corinth? Should we care about insects anymore? Should we have only three-colored yarn in our churches? Our churches' temples? 
I don't see a curtain. Should we have a city of refuge? Should churches be cities of refuge? Like they were sometimes in the Middle Ages. Right? So a murderer flies, flees into a, into a church building, you can't touch him. They say, well, okay, well, that's all that Old Testament stuff. Okay, but what about Jesus then? Here Jesus says in Matthew 5.29 that if your eye causes you to sin, you should simply take an instrument and gouge it out. Right? Because it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. But nobody in my church, virtually all of us, I suppose, would be guilty of this, but I don't know anybody who's gouged out their eyes lately. We don't take it at face value, even though heaven and hell are at stake. And yet, the admonition right before it on lust and the admonition right after it on divorce, we take quite literally. So why can we take the sandwiches literally and not the bologna in between in the same context? Right? And how does Jesus being sent by the Father to the cross in John 3.16 relate to Moses nailing a snake to a stake back in Numbers? And if God loves the world, what does He mean by love? And who's the world? When within John's own Gospel, not everybody from the world are chosen to be God's people. John 13.18 and 15.19. Will cloned babies brought about through artificial means of reproduction, will they be loved by God? Chosen by Him? Does regeneration precede repentance or repentance precede regeneration? Should women rule as elders in the local church? Should Christians keep the Sabbath? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is the image of God who we are or what we do or a combination of both? Should Christians bear arms? Should we be in the army? Should we be in Iraq? Should we shouldn't be in Iraq? Should we be in the social security system? Should we not be in the social security system? Is there a future for ethnic Israel? Can a person pray too much? Matthew 6, 7. In what sense is the whole world under the control of the evil one? 1 John four nineteen. If Jesus brought the kingdom of God. These were the kinds of questions people were asking in the ancient church. They wanted to know how in the world the Old Testament related to their lives, since it was the only Bible they had, and how in the world does Jesus' teaching relate to their lives as Christians? And why don't those Jews agree with us when we read Isaiah 53? How do you get at the meaning of the Bible for missions and for Christian life? And this was a huge problem in the ancient church. It was a big problem. Because both in applying the Bible to Christian life and in witnessing to others, Christians began to disagree with how to interpret the Bible. And so you could go to different places, not unlike today, and have Christians reading the same Bible and coming up with very different interpretations. So there was a crisis of hermeneutics. Hermeneutic is a fancy word that just simply refers to the principles and techniques we use in interpreting the Bible in order to figure out what it means and how to apply it to our lives. Hermeneutics is simply a fancy word that means the science, the practice of interpretation. And the first big and lasting crisis in the church, therefore, was a crisis of hermeneutics. 
Why don't those Jews agree with us? And why do some Christians keep the Sabbath and others don't? And was Peter the first pope or not? Huge, huge question in the early church. All right. What was the first answer to the problem of the diversity within churches and the challenge to missions? The first answer to that problem was the allegorical method. The allegorical method. As a way of reading the Bible, sanctioned by the church, that would lead us to the agreed conclusions we need to witness to others and to apply the Bible to our own lives. Everybody agrees that this allegorical method reached its most developed and authoritative presentation by this father, this church father called Origen, who died in 254 A.D. So that by the middle of the 3rd century, you had a very well-developed, church-sanctioned way of reading the Bible. And, of course, they wanted a biblical support for this allegorical method. And the biblical support, you might remember, was 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul was a minister, made sufficient to be a minister of the New Covenant, which meant that, unlike ministers of the Old Covenant, like Moses, he was a minister not of the letter, which kills, but of the Spirit, which makes alive. And Origen, at the climax of a long history of interpretation, said, 2 Corinthians 3.6 teaches us that for every passage of Scripture, there are at least two meanings. A literal meaning, the letter, and a spiritual meaning. It's, it's hidden, spiritual, real significance. So, The letter kills. If you just read the surface level of the Bible, if you just read its literal level, just take the text for what it means, you're going to have only three-fold colored cords in your church. You're not going to eat insects. You're going to keep the Sabbath. You're going to end up doing kosher. You're going to be keeping ritual purity laws. And you're going to think Jesus wasn't the Messiah because... He was crucified. So the literal level of the Bible is going to be either deadly or irrelevant because insects and three-colored yarn is not applicable to the church directly and Jesus is the crucified Messiah. Isaiah 53 isn't about Israel merely. It's about the servant of Israel, Jesus. But... You can't figure out the spiritual meaning of the text simply by reading the literal meaning. So what do you have to do when you read the Bible? You have to first read the literal meaning, figure out what that is, and then when you read the literal meaning, if it seems to be irrelevant to your life or lead to a conclusion that contradicts what we know to be true in our Christian life and about Jesus, then you've got to search for a hidden spiritual meaning below the surface of the text. Now, we have the same thing right to today, don't we? We say... Don't don't just live by the letter of the law. Live by the spirit of the law. Right? I mean, the law isn't just about not eating insects. It has this deeper spiritual meaning. And so there is a 
a meaning of the text that is below its literal affirmation. So, remember the story of Samson and the jawbone and the lion, right? What's that about at the literal level? Well, it's about a strong man. sees a lion, got a jawbone, kills the lion, right? Rips open the carcass, takes the honey out of the lion's stomach, and takes it home and gives it to his parents. And they have some great honey for supper. But that's not what that Bible text is really about. God didn't put insects and yarn and Samson killing a lion in the Bible simply at the literal level for us to have stories from the past at a literal level. He's got, always got spiritual meaning. So what's Samson and the lion and the honey really about? Well, everybody knows. Samson is the apostle. And the lion is the grave. And the honey is the crucified Christ. And the apostle, in the preaching of the gospel, announces the resurrection of the crucified Christ, taking the honey out of the lion, and he takes it home and he shares it with the world. So, Samson and the lion, among other things, is about the mission of the church to proclaim the resurrected Christ to the world. That's what it's really about. And on and on and on it can go. Noah and the ark. At the, at the literal level, it's about a flood and a guy, eight people in his family, in a boat, you know, destruction of the world. But what's Noah and the ark really about? What's the ark really? It's the church. The ark's the church. Now, eventually, this idea of making a distinction between the literal and the spiritual led to what became known as a fourfold allegorical reading of the text. They saw one literal meaning. And then they saw three hidden spiritual meanings of different kinds. Prophetic meaning, a moral meaning, and a gospel-related meaning. A Jesus typological meaning. So, you had literal interpretations and then you had these hidden fourfold senses. So, it's, it's obvious why the Jews reject Jesus when they read Isaiah 53. They're just reading the literal level. They don't have the spiritual meaning. Now, here's the rub. How do you get the spiritual meaning of the text? How do you know the ark's really about the church, Samson's about apostles, and Isaiah, and Isaiah 53 is really about Jesus and not about Israel? How do you know that for sure? Well, Paul told us, 2 Corinthians 3.6, the letter kills, but what makes alive? Better put, who makes the lie? The Spirit. So how do you get to the spiritual meaning of the text? The Spirit tells you the spiritual meaning of the text. But as soon as they let that cat out of the box, can you see what happened? Hermeneutical anarchy. Hermeneutical anarchy. Because everybody's sitting at home, and they're getting their own threefold spiritual 
meanings to the text. And they come back to church and say, you know what? The ark is not about the church, Pastor, like you said last week. The ark's about spaceships. And I know because the Spirit told me last night when I was reading. The ark is a spaceship. And Samson's not about the apostles preaching the resurrected Christ. Samson is an extraterrestrial who's bringing the message of the Internet. Pardon? Okay. Right? So what, do we should, what should we do? We should recognize that civilization is the result of being visited by extraterrestrials from another planet, a spaceship, who have finally left with us the technology of the Internet so that we can create a global community of love and peace through intercommunication. So let's get rid of these pews and put up computer terminals. And we'll sit around and send our emails of love and peace. Amen. There's the new mission of the church. Can you see the problem? How are you going to keep, how are you going to keep people saying, it's spaceship and not the ark. It's extraterrestrials and not the apostles. When the meaning is below the surface of the text. We're all agreeing at the literal meaning, ark and Samson. What about the spiritual meaning? Well, you know what the answer was, of course. By about 500 A.D., they had 200 years of anarchy, there was one little school up there in Antioch that kept saying, you just got to stick with the literal meaning. Whatever the literal meaning is, you got to stick with that. And then you got to understand the history of redemption. You got to see how God has revealed Himself progressively through time and relate the whole Bible together canonically and interpret Isaiah in light of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy in light of Romans. You got to stick with the Bible. Stick with the Bible. Stick with the Bible. Read the literal sense. But you know what? They just got overshadowed. That wasn't going anywhere. They were in a little minority out in Antioch. And Antioch had also produced a lot of heretics. And so we don't want to take their way of reading the Bible because they also got a lot of bad theology out there. And the whole thing just got sidelined. Besides, if you're stressing the literal meaning of the Bible, you can just take that and incorporate it into the fourfold sense of Scripture anyway, can't you? So that wasn't going to be. You know what the answer was? You can guess, can't you? If I've got 17 people in my church and they've got 15 different interpretations of the ark in terms of what it really means, How are you going to solve the problem? What do you need? You need an authority, right? You need somebody who's got more of the Spirit than you do to tell you that your, what you thought was the Spirit was, you know, heartburn. You know, and what you thought was Revelation was a science fiction movie. Right? You've got to have somebody who's got more of the Spirit than you do who's really getting the secret meaning, the hidden meaning, the allegorical meaning of the text below the surface. And guess who that person ended up being by the time you get to the 12th century and the 13th century and the 14th century. Guess who that person ended up being? The Pope and the teaching magisterium of the church. The Pope is the vicar of Christ, has ultimately the possession of the Spirit which enables him through the teaching magisterium of the church to determine the real meaning of the text. And so, Scripture was authoritative only as applied to the church through the tradition of the church itself. As that tradition came down from the top to the bottom through the authoritative announcements of the teaching magisterium. The allegorical method led 
quickly and profoundly to the teaching authority of the church, which eventually in a pyramid had to have somebody at the top called the Pope. You see how that works? What did the Reformation do then? The Reformation did a lot of things. But at this most fundamental level, it did the most important thing when it came to the question of how do we understand the Bible. In the beginning, the Reformation was an argument about the allegorical method. Because remember now, most priests by Luther's day were illiterate. And they couldn't even read at all. Most of them. And so what they did when they went to their ministerial training schools was they memorized the Latin Mass. And they memorized the results of the teaching magisterium and sort of canons of church law. And so when you came and asked a priest a question, he would give you the memorized answer that he'd received from the teaching magisterium of the church because you couldn't read the Bible. He couldn't read the Bible. Nobody could read the Bible. You look at stained glass windows, which is great. They're beautiful. But the point was... All of it was from the top down through the reception and passing on of tradition in a Latin text, a Latin biblical text, being guarded over with Latin church pronouncements. When people were speaking French and German and Italian and all that jazz, right? One step removed. And so to be a ruler in the church meant to be the representative of the Pope in a local congregation who could recite the Mass and quote the church decisions. Then the Renaissance struck. And all the rage was reading ancient literature in its original languages. We want to read Plato in Greek, just like Tim had to do it. We want to read Plato in Greek and we want to read you know, we want to read Virgil in Latin and we want to rediscover the past because there are mysteries and beauties of the past now that are ours and through Great elaborate work. They rediscovered how to read Hebrew and Greek, ancient Hebrew and Greek, which hadn't been read in any kind of large sense for over a thousand years. Because remember, the church had gone Latin. And the Orthodox East, which had preserved the Greek text, had been sidelined off. And Hebrew was just the purview of a few Christians who knew the Jewish rabbinical tradition. So... Any school that wanted to be anything at the time of the Reformation now had to get Greek and Hebrew teachers because that's how you got to be a big name. So, I mean, that's what they're doing in the Sorbonne, right? I mean, they're reading Greek and Hebrew now. That's what they're doing in the big universities of Germany. You want to be a big university? You want to, you want to be accredited? You've got to have somebody who teaches Greek and Hebrew. Now, the problem is it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks, especially if you're a small school and everyone's busy anyway. So you've got a small school, everyone's busy, the older teachers are old and tired. I mean, it's a lot of hard work learning Greek and Hebrew. So now you get this young, fresh, zealous monk named Martin Luther who will do anything we tell him. I mean, the guy starves himself to death, you know, to try to get holy. He beats himself till his back bleeds, you know. He sleeps on the, on the cold stone floor of his monk's cell night after night after night through the winter in search for the penance that will bring him peace in his soul for his sins. He won't even dare to come near the altar. He recognizes his sin. He'll do anything we tell him. Martin, go learn Greek and Hebrew so we can be a real school. So he did. And he began to lecture, as you know, on the Psalms from the Hebrew text. Romans eventually from the Greek text. And in so doing, cut through 1,200 years of the allegorical method, the entire Latin tradition, 
and had in front of him now the text and nothing but the text. He would call it Sola Scriptura in the end. And when he meant Sola Scriptura, you know what he meant? He meant no allegorical method. No memorized conclusions handed down from on high. No supremacy of the Pope. What I've got now is just the text in its sufficiency and authority and originality and, he argued, its one intended meaning, which is the literal meaning granted to us through a study of the text in its original languages and original context. So you know the very first thing, well, there are two things you sort of had to do if you were a priest who got converted in the Reformation under Martin Luther's movement. First, you had to get married to show that you were now renouncing the priesthood and the monastic tradition from which he had come. So he's getting married to everybody, right? And then eventually they said, how about you, Martin? We're all married. You're not. So he had to get married, you know. Then what did you have to do? You had to go back to school. He went all over the place. Not him personally, but his followers. Starting little schools, and they taught Greek and Hebrew, and everybody had to go back. Because he wasn't going to have anybody preaching in his pulpit who couldn't read the text for themselves. And it's not because he rejected tradition completely. Of course not. He was an Augustinian monk. They used the creeds of the church. And Luther, of course, developed his own traditions. And they read his writings, and they taught his teachings. But traditions were now always to be subsumed under the text and under the authority of the text. Because we are rejecting the allegorical method, we're going with Sola Scriptura, and we're going to have one meaning of the text, its literal historical meaning in its own context, not any meanings behind the text that only those who are privileged with the Spirit can get at. Because Luther argued that the Spirit and the Word are identified. And the Spirit doesn't lead you to Rome, the Spirit leads you to the biblical text. And the Spirit's never in contradiction to the text. And the Spirit doesn't have a hidden meaning underneath the text. What does the Spirit do? Not tell you what the Bible means, but change your heart so you're willing to go where the Bible leads when it's preached and taught. So you know what we've got to do? We've got to get some people in the pulpit who can read the text for themselves with authority and confidence. So we'll send them back to school. But you know, I'm hiding out here in this castle, and I know that if eventually they're going to find out where I am, and they're going to take me and kill me. So I only probably got about two months left. So what should I spend the last two months of my life doing before they find me here and go kill me? Remember what he does? He translates the Bible into German. Because he wants, when his followers are preaching, his people to be studying, reading along, checking in their text, whether they agree with the arguments and the reasonings and the conclusions. Because there's not going to be any hidden spiritual meanings. It's going to be the exposition of the text as it is. So now what about 2 Corinthians 3.6 then? Because that was origin, it's proof text, and it was the text of the Middle Ages. The letter kills, the spirit makes alive. Remember that was interpreted to be a hermeneutical contrast between the literal meaning and the spiritual meaning? Luther said, no, no, it's not a contrast between the literal meaning and the spiritual meaning. That's a misunderstanding of 2 Corinthians 3. It's a contrast between the law and the Old Covenant and the Gospel and the New Covenant. Now, we're not going to be arguing tonight about how he understood that contrast, but that's what he thought. And he was right. That it's a historical contrast between the Law and the Old Covenant and the Gospel and the Spirit and the New Covenant. And that's right. It's a contrast in periods of time. It's not a contrast between two ways of reading the Bible. A literal way and a spiritual way. Can you see how radical that change is? 
2 Corinthians 3.6 was not about how to read the Bible. 2 Corinthians 3.6 was about how to relate to God and the history of redemption. A God who had revealed Himself in the living Word and in a written Word. So, the Reformers explicitly rejected the allegorical method associated with origin and codified in the church tradition and taught by the teaching magisterium of of the papal office. They rejected the allegorical method and its consequent submission of the individual to the authority of the church and her tradition in favor of putting every individual under the one meaning of the text. I'm sorry, I'm probably talking too loud. I get excited at this point. Because I'm a Greek teacher. And the only reason I ever learned Greek and Hebrew, I like to teach Hebrew too, but colleagues will probably never let me. So, anyway, division of labor. But the only reason I ever learned Greek was because someone told me early on in my Christian life that the Bible, New Testament, was written in Greek. first person that led a Bible site told me it was written in King James English because she really believed it was. I mean, we laugh, but I mean, I didn't know. I didn't come from a Christian background, you know. And she said, King James is good enough for Paul. It's good enough for us. And, you know, but then, I mean, this is, this is this true. I mean, this is absolutely true. I was told that. But then the problem was I was reading the preface, you know, because the Bible's a book and all books have prefaces, you know. So I started reading the preface and it started talking about these translators and these committees, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm going, oh, translations, committees, you know. People meet in Motel 6 in Grand Rapids, you know. I mean, that's how we got the English Bible. So, well, not the King James Version, obviously. But, you know. So, now, the individual could interpret the Bible for himself or herself, empowered by an individual Bible in the individual's hands, for the first time in their language, corresponding to the Greek and Hebrew being preached from the pulpit. So you've got an individual with an individual Bible in their own language and with the invention under God's providence of the printing press, the multiplication of these texts all over. And instead then of the teaching magisterium telling us what we had to believe because they had more of the Spirit than we did, we were all now put back on the conscience of the pastor and the confirmation of his congregation that the plain truth of Scripture was being taught. And if you didn't agree with them, you could argue with them after the service. Under the allegorical method and magisterium of the church, there's no argument. If you don't agree with the church, why don't you agree with the church? Because you don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's led the church to believe this. And if you don't believe it, it's because you don't have enough of the Spirit. You better go back and pray until you get more of the Spirit. Now, how will you know when you get more of the Spirit? You'll agree with us. Exactly. But in the Protestant world, when you disagreed about the meaning of the text, you couldn't say, it's because you have more of the Spirit than I do, or I have more than you do. You can't play spiritual one-upmanship. It's everyone's text in everyone's hand, and everyone's history of redemption. And instead of me playing spiritual one-upmanship and saying, now, sister, brother, just go home and pray until you get more of the Spirit and you'll agree with me, I have to say, oh, we're going to have to argue about this. Of course, in love. We're going to have to study to figure out where this passage fits in the history of redemption, understand its plain meaning, compare 
text to text, canon to canon, Bible passage to Bible passage, until you can convince me or I can convince you or we come up with a third meaning that neither one of us were aware of before. Now, just to show you how radical this was. Because of Luther and the early reformers' wedding now of bringing Scripture together with reason of the conscience, right? Let your conscience be your guide. It's a Reformation principle. So you've got Scripture and reason and the Spirit now working in the church to make us humble so we'll go where our conscience leads us when we're reading the text together as we argue with one another about its meaning. So we've got Scripture, reason, and the Spirit and conscience. All this stuff coming together. Standing against tradition because of all that's happening. When Luther, this little tiny monk from this obscure school, I mean, he's not coming from the Sorbonne. He's coming from Wittenberg. That little podunk, you know, it's like that little school out there. It's like, you know, I don't know, some Wachitacha Bible Institute or something, you know. They bring him before his accusers. And the representatives of the Holy Roman Empire are there. I mean, we can't imagine the contrast. With the greatest power the known world at that time had ever seen, represented in that room, ecclesiastically and politically, in all their robes, in all their finery, in all their soldiers. And you got this little Augustinian monk in his brown robe standing before him. And he's on trial for his life as a heretic. And they tell him, you've got now one day. And they put his writings in on the table. You've got one day to repudiate your writings or we're going to kill you. And remember Luther said, okay, I've got to have a night to think about it. You know, went back, thought about it. I don't know how much he's thinking about it. But next morning he came in and said, no, I won't repudiate it. After he refused to repudiate his writings, the official appointed by the Archbishop of Trier to examine Luther, this guy named Eck, he declared one last time in the front of this court to Luther, your plea to be heard from Scripture is the one always made by heretics. You do nothing but renew the errors of Wycliffe and Huss. You know the two prior to the Reformation reformers? Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of these Scriptures? I mean, look who we are. And you're saying you're right and we're all wrong? Can, I mean, can you feel it? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And then Luther, a simple monk, son of a poor miner, stands before the Emperor Charles, looking him right in the eye after the accuser's done. And he says this, Since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer...